From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, should the Supreme Court base its decisions on what it considers to be the original intent of the framers? That's what the originalists say, and they dominate today's court. Erwin Chemerinsky will explain. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley and author most recently of the book, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. But first, we know a lot about the bad things J. Edgar Hoover did, but it turns out there's a lot we didn't know. Historian Beverly Gage will explain in a minute. The left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years, ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover that puts it all together from beginning to end with a lot of stunning new information. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author is Beverly Gage. She teaches history at Yale. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Beverly Gage, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, John. We know a lot about the bad things Hoover did, wiretapping Martin Luther King and then trying to blackmail him into committing suicide right before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and COINTELPRO, the secret campaign to disrupt the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement. But your book reminds us that Hoover also did some things that were not bad. So let's be fair and remind us what's on your list. Well, it is true that the book tries to take a, a pretty balanced view of Hoover, which actually isn't that hard to do when you have someone who has been so villainized for so long. <laughs> Even acknowledging a handful of good things um, puts you uh, puts you somewhere in the uh, the revisionist camp. Um, but I would say that most of the quote unquote good things that Hoover did in his life came out of a tradition of kind of professional government service that he learned during the progressive era when he was a young man. He believed in the power of the state. He believed in the power of expertise. And so there are lots of moments where he is actually acting as almost a civil libertarian. He opposed Japanese mass incarceration and internment during the Second World War, which was not a popular view in, <laughs> in even the Roosevelt administration. There are some great moments in the book where he stands up to Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon thinks that uh, Hoover has become some sort of civil libertarian. Um, and then there are just some moments where the FBI actually delivers on what it's supposed to deliver on, which is solving crimes and uh, enforcing the law. Yeah, for example, in 1964, uh, he helped prosecute the Klan killers of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Volunteers, Mickey Schwerner, James Goodman, and Andrew Cheney. So I want to talk for a minute more about Hoover and Nixon. One of the good things that he did was refuse Nixon's request to go after Daniel Ellsberg after the release of the Pentagon Papers. So what exactly did Nixon want? This is 1969, 1970, and why did Hoover refuse? 
Nixon wanted, it's the FBI didn't refuse altogether uh, to investigate. They were kind of looking into things, but Nixon wanted a much more aggressive campaign. And Hoover held back for a couple of reasons. One is that in 1969 and 70, Nixon and Henry Kissinger had already asked Hoover to uh, wiretap White House staffers, members of the press who were suspected of leaking. And Hoover went along with it. He did it, but he wasn't sure it was going to be a very very good idea. And he was really worried about what would happen if it came out, particularly the wiretapping of members of the press. So he's already cautious about those things. He often uh, said that he was friendly with Daniel Ellsberg's father-in-law as well. So there was a personal side to this story. And Hoover was just growing a little bit more cautious in his old age. And I think a little bit more aware of just how combustible and controversial it would be in the end. And rightly so, you know, he says, we got to really hold back. They're going to make Ellsberg into a martyr. And uh, Nixon, of course, didn't didn't listen to him. <laughs> so what did Nixon do when Hoover refused to go after Ellsberg the way Nixon wanted him to? Yeah, it's one of the moments where Nixon says, okay, if the FBI isn't going to do exactly what I want, I'm going to have my own team. Um, and this is one of the origins of the plumbers and the plumbers themselves, who were sort of Nixon's dirty trick squad. Um, they had members of the FBI, former agents and others who had been trained by Hoover, uh, but who were now willing to do Nixon's bidding a little bit more directly. And that plumber's thing, as I recall, didn't work out that well for Nixon. Yeah, you know, he, he might have seen that this, uh, if he had listened to Edgar, maybe it would have all been different. It's actually funny when you when you listen to the Nixon tapes, um, Watergate happens right after Hoover's death. Uh, and a, a few years in, you you hear Nixon saying, if my old friend Edgar were still around, you know, it wouldn't all be collapsing around me like this. But before Hoover dies, just a year before he died, came the event that damaged him more than anything else in his lifetime, the break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, March 1971. Remind us what happened there. This is really a fantastic story, and it's been told tremendously well in a book by Betty Medzger called The Burglary, as well as a terrific documentary film called 1971 by Johanna Hamilton. Um, and it's an incredible story, first of all, because it's just a small band of activists in the Philadelphia area um, who in 1971 decide that they want to expose what the FBI has do been doing to the new left. Um, and so they break in to a very small regional office in Media, Pennsylvania, which actually happens to be right next to my hometown. So I felt a kind of good hometown connection to this story. Um, and they go in and they steal all of Hoover's files, all of the files that are in there. Um, and this really becomes the moment that uh, we get some a documentation of what almost everyone in the new left understood was happening, which was uh, FBI infiltration, surveillance um, of a wide range of activists. But the really great part of the story is that the FBI fails to catch them. And uh, so they, they actually really got away with it and uh, came out and revealed themselves uh, about 10 years ago. Um, turns out a bunch of uh, good anti-war activists from the, from the Philadelphia area. Later that year, after the media FBI burglary, the fall of 1971, Nixon decided it was time for Hoover to go. You say Nixon's advisors suggested various inducements he could offer Hoover. For example, 
They do a lot of very funny brainstorming about it. Um, like maybe we can bump him up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's maybe the one that can... really that's the one <laughs> that really got to me. Are you exactly. kidding? But the beautiful thing about that story is that Nixon actually brings Hoover in, tries to have this conversation, tries to make the case that the moment has come to step down. And uh, Hoover more or less refuses. He says, well, you know, Dick, if you insist and you order me to step down, you're the president. Obviously, I would have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And Nixon says, oh, OK, well, if you don't want to do it, nobody's <laughs> nobody's insisting on this. And why? Why didn't Nixon fire him when he decided? decided it was time for Hoover to go. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's career, and it's not just Nixon, right? Hoover was director of the FBI for 48 years. So he started under Calvin Coolidge, um, and he lasts under eight presidents, four of them Democrats, four of them Republicans. And so that's one of the big questions. How did he do it? And I think there are a combination of factors. So one that we wouldn't tend to think about today is the fact that even very late in life, uh, Hoover was pretty popular. And for most of his career, he was incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular, best respected public servants in America, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, by the time we get to the Nixon years, I think Nixon sees a couple of things going on. One is that he really based a lot of his 1968 campaign and then a lot of his domestic politics around a kind of Hoover-esque law and order message. And so he's been celebrating Hoover um, and he's nervous that law and order conservatives are going to be upset with him if he forces Hoover out. Hoover knows a lot of things about the Nixon administration as well from the secret wiretaps that he had planted uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there are great quotes um, from kind of the end of the first Nixon term in which Nixon says that he fears, you know, if they really try to ease Hoover out, that Hoover is this man who's going to bring down the temple around him, that he knows everything and uh, it's just too, too dangerous. So Hoover died in office, May 1972. What did Nixon say when he heard the news? Nixon said that old cocksucker uh, <laughs> and he... Uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because Nixon, I think, is very relieved when Hoover dies because it solves a problem that he's been trying to solve for a while, or at least he thinks it will solve his problem. Uh, but there also seems to be some real grief there. I mean, this is someone who had been in his life for 25 years. They had socialized together. They had been political allies. That phrase, that old cocksucker, you could take it to be an expression of admiration, which you do in the book, but... You could also take it as a reference to Hoover's homosexuality. So we need to talk about Hoover's relationship with Clyde Tolson. That relationship was not a secret, right? What did people know about Hoover and Tolson during his lifetime? This was the key relationship of Hoover's life, and Clyde Tolson was his second in command at the FBI for most of his career, really from the 1930s onward. Tolson became an agent in 1928. Um, and it is a funny combination of a very open and very public relationship, and then a very inaccessible and in some ways quite secretive relationship. The open part of it is that they worked very closely together at the FBI for four decades. Um, and so their private and 
and public lives were really fused. Neither one of them married, and they were obviously each other's primary social partner. So uh, they traveled together, they double dated together, they went to nightclubs together and the racetrack together, and everyone in Washington, in New York, in LA, the places they hung out, knew to treat them as a couple, and they were a very widely accepted social couple. Now, whether you could then describe them as a gay couple is a slightly different question. So certainly they pushed back against that. Your evidence on uh, this relationship includes Hoover's private vacation photos. These are remarkable documents, and we salute you for publishing these in the book. Tell us about them and what you make of them. Yeah, Hoover left behind these amazing photo albums, and they are his personal photo albums, and certainly in the 30s and 40s especially, a lot of what's there are very, very intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Um, the ones that I published are my favorites, but <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these that you could choose from, and a lot of them are really very intimate shots uh, in back bathrobes, in uh, bathing suits, out on the beach, kind of private moments of gazing at each other, them with their arms thrown around each other uh, in a sort of friendly way, more than a romantic way necessarily. But uh, what really struck me about those is, on the one hand, just their, their, their genuine intimacy, which you can really see and feel in them, and then the sheer number of them. What did Bobby Kennedy call Hoover and Tolson? Bobby Kennedy was not super nice to them or big fans of them, and he used to refer to them as J. Edna and Clyde. <laughs> Man. I also was a, a, a amazed to see that starting in 1962, the Manachine Society, the first gay organization, started inviting him to their events. That was a great file to come across. So the, the local Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C. is clearly having some fun with the FBI, you know, and at a moment when it required actually a lot of bravery and confidence uh, to do that, but they start putting Hoover on their mailing list, inviting him to such events as, you know, the homosexual in America, a lecture for uh, those who might want to be informed. And Hoover gets very worked up about this. He gets them <laughs> called into the FBI and they say, well, we'll take you off our list if you'll take us off of yours. <laughs> Great. Great story. So now back to the beginning. Young J. Edgar Hoover went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and joined a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Tell us about Kappa Alpha. Kappa Alpha is really a fascinating institution and one that I didn't know much about when I started writing about Hoover. The National Kappa Alpha had been formed in 1865, uh, key year, end of the Civil War, to honor the memory and the lost cause of Robert E. Lee. And so throughout the late 19th and into the early 20th century, they're a really key institution uh, for white Southern men, uh, particularly very prominent white Southern political men. And two of the biggest figures in the fraternity at the moment that Hoover joined were John Temple Graves, who was 
uh, a segregationist, pro-lynching Southern editor, very famous figure, a great champion of the Atlanta race riot and not in the ways one might want. Uh, and the other was Thomas Dixon, who <laughs> was the author of The Klansman, which is the film that became the birth of a nation. And they're really the two standard bearers of the fraternity on a cultural level. And then you've got all these Southern Democrats who were actively engaged in uh, creating segregation in the early 20th century. They're all kind of in the alumni chapters around DC. And I think this is a lot of where Hoover gets both his racial um, and to some degree his political education is, is in his fraternity. And Kappa Alpha, I learned from Google, is still going strong. They have chapters at 122 schools. We record our program in Los Angeles, and there's a chapter of Kappa Alpha at USC. And it was in the news just the last year. It was one of six fraternities that refused to accept the university's new rules on preventing sexual assault at frat parties. Kappa Alpha, still going strong. Well, we have to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their execution in 1953 for stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Russians was one of Hoover's highest profile projects. But now we know that the FBI basically went after the wrong guy. The Russians did get American atomic secrets, but not from Julius and Ethel. They got them from real nuclear scientists, first of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was caught by the Brits, and then from a brilliant young American physicist named Ted Hall. Ted Hall was identified in the Venona decrypts that the FBI had as a key Soviet spy at Los Alamos. The FBI investigated Ted Hall for spying, but they never arrested him, and he went on to live a long and happy life as a scientist. There's a book about uh, his life. It's called Bombshell, The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunstel. Uh, and at the same time we learned about Ted Hall, we also learned that David Greenglass, who was the FBI's key witness against the Rosenbergs, the brother of Ethel, admitted that he had lied about her in the trial, that she had not typed the documents Julius gave to the Soviets. And, so his lies sent her to the electric chair. That story was told in an interview by Sam Roberts at the New York Times in 1996. And he later wrote a book about it called The Brother. That book had one unforgettable sentence. William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution and later secretary of state under Nixon, admitted to Sam Roberts of the New York Times that the government's objective was never to kill the Rosenbergs, but to get them to confess and he said of Ethel, quote, she called our bluff. She called our bluff. So Julius was a spy, but he didn't give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. Ethel was framed by the FBI and her brother. The real spy was never prosecuted. My question for you is, why did Hoover decide to go after the Rosenbergs instead of Ted Hall? Well, the Venona Project is a really interesting and somewhat complicated story. So on the one hand, uh, these are decrypts that the army gets during the war. 
Um, they begin after the war to collaborate with the FBI in trying to sort out what is in these Soviet communications. Um, and they find that a lot of them have to do with, uh, with intelligence and espionage. And so beginning in the late 40s, they work together. Um, Venona leads them, in fact, to a, a pretty substantial number of people, including Julius Rosenberg. Um, it leads them to far more people, as you suggest, than they're actually able to prosecute. Um, and that's partly because their number one goal with Venona is to keep its existence secret. So they're able to go after Julius Rosenberg because they have a witness who is willing to testify, right? So because you have David and then Ruth Greenglass, uh, you're able to actually do something in court. And during the entire Rosenberg case, the existence of Venona is not known, though people, uh, people do have a sense that there's something that the FBI knows that they're holding back. And in fact, they're right about that. But on the other hand, because you want to keep this secret, if you can't find a witness and you can't find material evidence, you can know to a great degree of certainty that someone like Ted Hall has been engaged in atomic espionage, but you know, if you're prioritizing secrecy, uh, you're not gonna go after him. And that was the decision that the, the FBI, the Justice Department and the army made together. You know, when they went after the Rosenbergs, as you say, the hope really was that the Rosenbergs would then flip and talk about other people and they would kind of keep following this chain down the line um, and be able to, uh, to go further. But the Rosenbergs do, in some sense, really, really stop it. And while Hoover was failing to get Julius and Ethel to cooperate, he was giving those most top secret counter espionage documents, the Venona decrypts, to the top British intelligence official in the United States, Kim Philby, who was soon shown to be a Soviet spy. How devastating was that for Hoover? It was pretty bad. That wasn't a great moment, right? So Kim Philby is this kind of illustrious a British counterintelligence person who gets sent over to be the, the liaison to the FBI and the CIA uh, in the very late 1940s, but of course turns out to have been a Soviet spy the entire time he's working for the British. So that was pretty devastating to, uh, to American intelligence, the FBI and the, and the CIA both. And what did the CIA conclude about this whole episode with giving the Venona secrets to uh, Kim Philby? Yeah, one CIA official says something pretty devastating, which is that uh, the FBI and the CIA would have been better off doing nothing about Soviet espionage in the 40s and 50s, rather than uh, engaging in what they did and handing it all over, in essence, to Kim Philby and the Soviets. So um, you've said how popular J. Edgar Hoover was at the peak of his career, you have this uh, startling uh, opinion poll in 1964 after uh, Hoover denounced Martin Luther King as America's most notorious liar. How did that go over with the public? This is a really famous moment. It's still a point of reference today, uh, the moment that Hoover really publicly goes after King and calls him the most notorious liar. Uh, and today, of course, we think evil J. Edgar Hoover, nobody would support that, you know, kind of sainted Martin Luther King. But at the time, that is not at all how the politics played out. So in a, in a poll conducted in that moment, 
full 50% of Americans say that they support Hoover, 16% say they're on King's side, and then a whole bunch of people say uh, they don't really know which side to be on. And what's interesting to me about that poll is that it suggests you know, that some of our more comforting national narratives uh, should be rethought a little bit because that's actually what the politics of the 60s looked like. So you conclude your story of J. Edgar Hoover that this is a story about America in the 20th century, what we tolerated and what we refused to see. Right. Part of the goal in this book is not just to have it be about this very, very interesting uh, and long-lived and influential man named J. Edgar Hoover, but really to tell a story about the growth of American government, particularly of the security state over the course of the 20th century, and to tell a story about Washington and national politics itself. Um, and I think that Hoover conceived of himself as being a person who really policed the limits of American democracy and decided what was going to be legitimate speech and what was going to be illegitimate speech. And he did a lot of that in secret. And so I think today, there's something really to be contended with about the idea, first of all, that Hoover was as popular as he was. We tend to think, oh, he was a rogue actor, and therefore, had people only known what he was up to, surely they would have rejected it. But he was pretty open about a lot of what he was doing, and in fact, had very deep and widespread support. And I think that tells us something different about our story of the 20th century than we might like to think. Uh, and then the piece that was secret, which was uh, some of the details of his secret apparatus, um, also ought to lead us to, you know, think really seriously about the kind of security state that was built um, out of the pressures of the 20th century, the ways in which it has contained political possibility and political speech over the course of the 20th century. Um, and we should think about how much of that we want in our own lives today. The book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. In The New Yorker, Margaret Talbot called it crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing. The author is Beverly Gage. Bev, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The job of the Supreme Court is to decide whether laws and court decisions are consistent with the principles of the Constitution. 
Should they decide that on the basis of the original intent of the framers? Or should they regard the Constitution as a living document that has evolved in response to changes in society and in our understanding of the world? Today, three Supreme Court justices are originalists, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, and three others often couch their arguments in originalist terms, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Samuel Alito. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's Dean of the Law School at UC Berkeley and the author of 15 books. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the LA Times op-ed pages. His new book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. Great to talk with you, John. Well, the originalists say their method is neutral and objective, but their rulings almost always seem to support Republican political positions. Why is that? There is no neutral or objective way to interpret the Constitution. The Constitution was intentionally written in very broad, open-ended language, and how justices read it is a function of their values. Besides, no right is absolute, and what constitutes a sufficiently compelling or important or legitimate interest is all about the values of the justices. Think about June of 2022. The Supreme Court found no abortion rights exist under the Constitution, that a high school football coach has a right to pray on the field, that the government is required in certain circumstances to subsidize religious schools and very expansive gun rights. Unless you believe that the framers in 1791 had the same views as the current Republican platform, it's clear what's going on. Well, of course, the originalists are are certainly right on some things. For instance, there is nothing in the Constitution that says women have a right to abortion. Nothing in the Constitution says anything about women. The word women doesn't appear in the Constitution. So the original intent of the men who wrote the Constitution was clearly not to protect women's right to abortion. That seems undeniable. In fact, Justice Scalia frequently said, that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment doesn't protect women from discrimination at all. It was only meant to stop race discrimination. That to me shows the absurdity of originalism. Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has rejected originalism. The court has protected its rights, the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase new contraceptives, the right to engage in private, consensual adult, same-sex sex activity, the right of competent adults to refuse medical care. None of those are in the text. None of those were intended by the framers either. If the court's going to overrule all of them, it's truly a radical reformation of constitutional law. Well, there is also something true about the argument that if you think something is missing from the Constitution or wrong in the Constitution, you can amend the Constitution. The Founding Fathers made that explicit. They didn't claim this was perfect for all time. They said, you can, you can change this if you want. And when it came to slavery, that's exactly what happened. The Founding Fathers didn't do anything about banning slavery, but after the Civil War, the Constitution was amended to prohibit slavery. So if you think abortion rights belong in the Constitution, go ahead and amend it. Amending the Constitution takes vote of two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. The Constitution was amended only 17 times since 1791, and two of those involved imposing 
and then repealing prohibition. More important, what we're talking about here is the rights of minorities in society. And the rights of minorities shouldn't have to depend on a supermajority to protect it. Let me give you an example I discuss in the book. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. There's no indication that Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment was trying to outlaw segregation. Therefore, Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. And by what you were just saying, under that view, the only way to outlaw segregation would be to pass a constitutional amendment. It never was going to happen. The rights of the minority should not depend on needing a supermajority to accomplish it. We've said that the founding fathers wrote broad principles, but in some cases, the original intent is pretty narrow and specific and clearly stated. For instance, the Second Amendment, the first words, this is the one about gun rights, the first words indicate that this is about a well-regulated militia. Some of the founding fathers wanted states to have strong militias to counter the national army, which they saw as potentially an instrument of tyranny. So the Constitution says the national government can't prevent states from organizing and arming militias. You can find out all about this if you read the 18th century arguments about standing armies and citizen militias. It's not about individual people carrying guns around. Here, the intent is perfectly clear, or at least it seems so to me. I think, as with anything, you can read intent either way. I think there's a strong argument, as you say, based on the text of the Second Amendment, that it's a right to have guns for militia service, and that's it. On the other hand, Justice Scalia made a strong argument in District of Columbia versus Heller that the Second Amendment was also about a right of people to have guns in their home for the sake of security. Justice Stevens made a strong argument in dissent that the Second Amendment is just about a right to have guns for militia service. The point that I'm trying to make is it's not like history is clear or that there's a single answer to be found from history. It's always much messier than that. There are people historically who expressed varying views. There were differing practices in the country at the time. So what you find is that justice or originalists are looking back at the historical record and picking the examples that support the position they want to come to and ignoring the rest. That's why the conservative justice using originalism magically always come to very conservative results. So their idea is we should study and learn the original intent of the founders. Uh, how do you do that exactly? Well, that assumes there was an original intent of the founder. In reality, there's so many people who participated at the Constitutional Convention and the state ratifying conventions with so many different views that there's not an intent to be found. It also begs the question, even if somehow we could bring James Madison and those who were at the Constitutional Convention back to life, what relevance would their views have today? They lived in such a radically different world in 1787 than ours of 2022. Why should we want to be bound by their conceptions? I noticed that Clarence Thomas argues that the original meaning of the Establishment Clause, prohibiting the establishment of an official religion, applies only to the federal government, and that it leaves states free to fund specific religious denominations, or even to declare that a state has an official religion. 
but none of the other people who call themselves originalists agree with him about that. So how do we decide who's right? Yes, that is Clarence Thomas's position that he's stated many times that the prohibition of establishment of religion only was meant to keep Congress from creating a national church. It doesn't create an individual right. Under the Thomas view, a state could articulate and establish an official state religion. A state could compel religious behavior. A state could fully subsidize churches and the constitution wouldn't limit it. Thankfully, no other justice has been willing to go along with that position. Justice Scalia called himself a quote, faint hearted originalist. He wasn't willing always to go as far as where the original intent might have taken the Supreme Court. My guess on this, the other justices or originalists are thankfully also being faint hearted. <laughs> well, they were perfectly clear about some things, two senators for each state, four years for the president. Then there are the things that are not so clear, like the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection of the laws. They don't say what that includes. Could it be that they left it open on purpose, that their original intent was to leave it to us to decide how it should be understood? I think there's overwhelming evidence that's exactly what the framers did. They left things open for the future. Chief Justice John Marshall, who was one of the framers at the Constitution Convention, said, we must never forget that it's a constitution we're expounding. Constitution meant to be adapted and endure for ages to come. I think there's strong evidence that the framers wanted the Constitution to take on meaning over time. They didn't want interpretation of the future to be governed by their views. It also is a very elegant argument against originalism, because if you follow what I just said, then if one was an originalist and wanted to follow the framers' intent, one has to abandon originalism because they never wanted it. I like that argument. <laughs> The um, Equal Protection Clause was cited just recently in the argument before the court about affirmative action at colleges and universities. The plaintiffs say affirmative action violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection. Tell us about that, uh, that argument that's currently being taken up by the justices where we're waiting for their decision. The Supreme Court in 1978, in 2003, and in 2016 said that college universities have a compelling interest in a diverse student body. College universities can use race as one factor in admission decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases on October 31st is where they'll overrule those prior decisions and eliminate affirmative action by college universities. Ironically here, the original intent of the 14th Amendment strongly supports affirmative action. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment created many programs like the Freedmen's Bureau that were race conscious. And it's interesting when the originalist justices, Scalia and Thomas, dissent in those earlier cases, they never mention that original intent. And my guess is we're going to see the same thing here. The six conservative justices overruling precedent, eliminating affirmative action and paying no attention at all to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Erwin Chemerinsky, his new book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. 
Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.